0: This episode of Wasteland may contain mature themes, profanity, and descriptions of sex, graphic violence, and criminal activity. Listener discretion is advised. is a certain beauty in my hometown of daytona beach florida it reveals itself only if you take the time to look for it but as a child i was aware of that beauty and only that sunrise on the beach watching my dad surf building sandcastles with my mom the incessant noise of another bike week or race week and the harsh reality of being a low-income spring break destination were far away from my pleasant little bubble What I mean is, despite our reputation of catering to the lowest common tourist denominator, Daytona wasn't always such a bad place to live, even back when Eileen Warnos was leaving a trail of bodies all over central Florida. They caught her in 1991 at the last resort, a biker bar that still stands just a quarter of a mile from my parents' house. Of course, I wasn't allowed to know anything about it back then. But it wouldn't be long before something happened that my parents were unable to hide from me, and I began to see things in a different light. My first inkling that there was a darker side to things, even in my hometown, came in 1992 when I was nine years old. By all accounts, Michelle Van Ness was the epitome of an all-American girl. She was an honor student, earning straight A's at Warner Christian Academy, The South Daytona private school she had attended for all 14 years of her academic life. The 17 year old was now a high school junior about to be inducted into the National Honor Society. After college, Michelle was intent on going to medical school to realize her dream of becoming a doctor. Despite her scholastic achievements, Michelle made time for extracurricular activities as a varsity cheerleader for Warner's Eagles. Not only this, but she managed to juggle her hectic school schedule while working a part-time job at a local Taco Bell. After seeing what a conscientious worker Michelle was, her manager agreed to hire several of her Warner Christian schoolmates. Michelle came from a good home. Her family was loving and supportive. She had her entire life ahead of her. There was no one on earth who should have wanted to hurt her. I've read a great deal of newspaper articles and court transcripts concerning brothers Jeff and Anthony Farina. But it was a handful of pictures I found circulating on the internet that ultimately allowed me to connect the flat-sounding words I found in so many of these documents to a pair of real human beings. In 1992, Anthony was the oldest of the brothers at age 18. Jeffrey was just two years younger. Looking at their mugshots now, one of Jeff after his initial arrest in 92, another of Anthony over 20 years later, it's easy to imagine what was going through their minds when the pictures were taken. Young Jeff's face is firmly set, blemished, like he's been in a fight recently. He has an air of indifference, not looking like he cares about what he's done. A much older Anthony looks off to his right, out of frame, his eyes sliding away as if to say, I shouldn't still be here as if he could somehow extricate himself from the brutal mess he made so many years ago. As for the brother's relationship, it was alleged during the boy's evidentiary hearing that the younger Jeff was the more dominant of the two. This came from Susan Griffith, their mother. She called Anthony more of a follower and Jeffrey a leader. A leader, she said, who was fascinated with knives. Family friend Tina O'Neill painted an unflattering picture of Jeff, alleging that the teen had a dark side and could become very aggressive. He would deliberately pick fights, sometimes with his older brother, fights which the young Jeff would usually win. At 16, Jeff was said to already own a gun and knife collection. Dr. Clifford Levin, who evaluated Anthony in 1992, claimed that the older brother suffered from a dependent personality disorder. Levin said that Anthony had a pattern of avoiding conflict and making decisions. However, Tammy Lewis, a former girlfriend of Anthony's, claimed that the elder brother would often attempt to quell the younger to lead Jeff away from trouble. In 1987, the Farinas were living in Monmouth, Illinois, with their mother Susan and their stepfather James Brandt. During the mitigation phase of the brother's trial, a Monmouth police officer provided testimony concerning the Farina's unstable home life. There were multiple allegations of domestic violence and child abuse, the former of which Brant was convicted of. An employee of the Monmouth Department of Children and Families testified that Anthony was eventually removed from the family home for sexually abusing his four-year-old sister, and family and friends noted that both Jeff and Anthony were involved in criminal behavior from an early age. Despite the crime they would eventually commit, it should be noted that the Farina brothers, by all accounts, endured an unhappy and dysfunctional childhood. By 1992, now living in Daytona Beach, Anthony Farina was father to a son by girlfriend Tammy Lewis. According to a friend and former co-worker of Anthony's named Carmen Wolstenholm, Anthony was a nice guy, though he was tight-lipped about his family. He did, however, tell Carmen about his son who at that time was living in Arkansas with the child's mother. At some point, Anthony decided he wanted to go visit them, but he needed money. He'd just been fired from his job at Taco Bell. Saturday, May 9th, 1992. Michelle Van Ness finishes her closing shift at Taco Bell. Accompanied by her co-worker, 16-year-old Derek Mason, Michelle takes the restaurant's trash to the outdoor dumpster, no doubt something she'd done many times. The repetitious task probably leads to a conversation between the two, perhaps about Michelle's impending induction into the National Honors Society. Maybe she talks about being excited to cheer at an upcoming Warner game. But waiting for them, wearing gloves and armed with a knife rope, and a 32 caliber pistol are Jeff and Anthony Farina. Whether Michelle recognized her former co-worker or thought he was playing a joke on her is unknown, but what happens next isn't. The brothers order Michelle and Derek back into the restaurant. After closing the door behind them, Jeff trains the gun on the two frightened co-workers as well as another Taco Bell employee, 19-year-old Gary Robinson, Anthony then demands that the store manager, 18-year-old Kimberly Gordon, open the safe. Jeff and Anthony assure the frightened employees that this is simply a robbery. No one will be hurt. The contents of the safe in hand, $2,158, the Farinas make the decision to tie up the four employees and herd them into the walk-in freezer. They reason this will help delay their call to the police. After all, The restaurant will be closed for the rest of the night. The brothers use their rope to tie each employee's hands behind their backs, and then they march them into the walk-in. And here is where it should have ended. A traumatic event, but one that all of the victims would live to tell about. Out of earshot of their captives, Jeffrey broaches the subject first. The brothers will be identified. Jeff offers to shoot their four captives. Even in the face of such a brutally unnecessary option, Anthony is unable to make the call. He tells his brother that he can't do it. It's up to Jeff. Jeff returns to the walk-in cooler and calmly shoots Derek Mason in the mouth and Gary Robinson in the chest. He turns the gun on Michelle Van Ness and shoots her in the head. Finally, he points the gun at Kimberly Gordon. But then, like a godsend out of a movie... Jeff's gun jams. Though she would survive the terrible events of that night, Kimberly wasn't to escape unscathed. Jeff uses the knife to stab her in the back. Their terrible work now done, the Farina brothers exit the Taco Bell and escape into the night. Sometime later, Gary Robinson wriggles free from his ropes. Jeff's bullet narrowly missed his heart, though it would remain lodged in his lung after this night was finally over. Gary calls the police. He would survive. So would Derek and Kim. Jeff and Anthony Farina were arrested on Sunday, May 10th, Mother's Day. It was also the same day that Michelle Van Ness died in the hospital. The brothers were apprehended when Carmen Walstenholme, Anthony's former co-worker, spotted them at a local gas station. The receipt for the bullets, gloves, and rope used in the robbery was still in their possession. They had spent a little under $300 of the $2,158 they had killed for. Later that day, the brothers sat in the back of a Daytona Beach police car, unaware that their words were being recorded. There are six tapes, at a length of approximately 30 minutes each, the contents of which have not been made public. However, There were two quotes damning enough for the local papers to print, and if the witnesses called at their evidentiary hearing are to be believed, these quotes fit perfectly with Jeff and Anthony Farina's personalities. A voice, identified as Anthony's, says, I was going to cut their throats, but I didn't. Then, Jeff's voice. They asked me, why did you shoot her? And I said, because I was having a boring day. It was decided that the Farina brothers would be tried together, treating 16-year-old Jeff as an adult. On December 16, 1992, both received the death penalty from a jury of their peers. Jeff and Anthony were going to the electric chair. Fortuitously for them, however, two years earlier, in 1990, a convicted multiple murderer named Jesse Tafaro received the same fate. And when the executioner flipped the switch and sent Jesse out into the ether, gouts of flame shot from his head. Old Sparky, the colloquial name for Florida's electric chair, had malfunctioned, and a bad man died harder than was intended. Perhaps it was Jesse Tafaro's demise that earned the Farinas a win on direct appeal. Or maybe it was the juror with mixed feelings about the death penalty who was dismissed in their 1992 trial. Whatever the reason, the brothers' death sentences were overturned in 1997. But in 1998, the brothers were yet again returned to death row. Eventually, Jeff's death sentence was reduced to life imprisonment due to his age as a minor at the time of the crime. Anthony, however, would wait until 2014 for an Atlanta appeals court to overturn his sentence. This was due to remarks made by Florida State Attorney and Prosecutor John Tanner during Anthony and Jeff's 1992 trial. John Tanner had occupied his office since 1988 and had garnered a fearsome reputation as a moralistic warrior in the courtroom. A self-proclaimed born-again Christian since the late 1970s, Tanner was well-known in Florida for prosecuting serial killer Eileen Warnos, boardwalk businessman and murderer Costa Fotopoulos, and six mom-and-pop Central Florida video stores who rented, among their regular titles, pornography. Tanner attributed his intolerance of adult entertainment to a series of conversations he had with convicted serial killer Ted Bundy. Tanner had visited Bundy in a Florida prison several times before the killer was executed in January of 1989. In his final hours, Bundy publicly laid the blame for his horrific crimes on an addiction to pornography. An impactful claim at the time, but one that has been dismissed in the ensuing decades. Tanner's ultimately futile pursuit of those six small video stores earned him an incredible amount of criticism, resulting in the prosecutor losing his bid for re-election in September of 1992. But it was his appeal to a higher authority while cross-examining a prison chaplain that may have, at least for a brief period, saved Anthony Farina from the electric chair. The prison chaplain was a Reverend James Davis, who had counseled Anthony Farina while he was incarcerated. After Davis testified that Anthony had admitted his repentance for his crimes, Tanner instructed the Reverend to read from the Bible, specifically Romans 13. Let everyone be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except that which God has established. The authorities that exist have been established by God. Consequently, Whoever rebels against the authority is rebelling against what God has instituted, and those who do so will bring judgment on themselves. When he was finished, Tanner asked the Reverend, Is there anything in scripture that you find that says the laws and the government should excuse crimes because someone is repentant? To which Reverend Davis replied, No. It must have been sadly ironic for the Van Ness family to watch their child's murderer escape what some would say was a justified punishment in the manner that he did. Anthony Farina squeaked through a leaphole created by the faith that had brought the Van Nesses so much strength and positivity. But the fault didn't lie in the faith itself. Rather, like most missteps involving religion, it was the application of the faith that created the problem. And that fault, despite his best intentions, can be laid at the feet of John Tanner. March of 2017 saw Jeffrey at a new sentencing hearing where he was given four life sentences for Michelle's murder and the other three attempted murders. The following month, Anthony received a life sentence as well. The brothers will not be executed by the state of Florida. But they will die in its prisons. The murder of Michelle Van Ness has always held an importance to me. She was the first person I remember hearing about who had been killed. The first real person. A person in close proximity, in my own town. You see, the first I ever heard of this crime was on the playground in third grade. One of my young classmates was crying, and I went over and asked her what was wrong. She told me, my cousin died. Michelle Van Ness had been killed in a building that stood less than two miles from my childhood home and still stands roughly the same distance from the condominium where I live. And it's still a Taco Bell. I drive by it often, and much as I don't like to admit my fast food cravings, I've eaten there many times. I didn't know Michelle Van Ness. Beyond my classmate, I didn't know her family, her friends, or anybody who may have been acquainted with her. I do know that a gazebo dedicated to her memory stands behind the Warner High School, two blocks from my home, though I've never set foot in it. But growing up, her death and the events surrounding it were never far from my mind. When she died, the realization of life's fragile nature, how quickly and senselessly it could be taken away, became tangible. I was nine, and I'll never forget it. Michelle, you may be gone... But even by some who never met you, you are not forgotten. This episode of Wasteland was researched, written, produced, recorded, edited, and in some areas scored by me, Michael Paul Anthony. If you'd like to contact the show, the email address is wastelandpodfl at gmail.com. I want to thank you for listening, and if you like what you heard, please share it with a friend. Until next time.